Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. So Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Those are found, uh, verses are found on page 921 of the Bible. And feel free to take that Bible as a gift uh, from us. If you don't have a Bible or if you have a friend who would like a Bible, um, again, Acts chapter 13, verses Page 921 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I'll go ahead and add my welcome to Bill's. My name is Paul Brandis, and I serve here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community as the executive pastor. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and I'd invite you to pray with me as we ask for God's help to understand his word. Father in heaven, um, I pray that I would diminish as you would increase, Um, that as we open up Acts chapter 13, that you would um, speak to us and lift off uh, the pages of the Bible um, exactly what it is that we need to hear from you this morning. It is incredible and amazing to me that uh, the Bible is you still speaking to us. Thank you for the gift that your word is, and I pray, Father, again, that we would understand it. Amen. Well, if you could choose just one word to describe yourself what would it be? Just one, not two or three. I'll let you choose a compound word, but you can't use any hyphens, okay? Just one word. It's a little bit hard, isn't it? And it probably depends on your mood, too. Has your coffee kicked in yet? Because that's a factor for sure. Well, as I thought about it for me, what's the one word that I would use to describe myself? I settled on the word talkative, Talkative. There's, a, there's laughter from the people that know me right now. They're, they're nodding in their minds. Thank you for nodding only in your minds. I can see all of you. So this, would, this would make me feel bad if you nodded out loud. Those of you that are new or you're visiting, you're, you're thinking, wait a second, talkative? How long is this sermon going to be? What, what am I in for? And that's a fair question. We've got 52 verses to cover this morning too. So we'll, we'll keep clipping along, I promise. Well, let's take this one word game and change the parameters a little bit. What would the one word that you would choose, what would it be if you had to describe Christians? What would the word be if you had to describe Christians? That might be an even harder game, wouldn't it? And unfortunately, I think there are some negative options floating out there. Maybe when I asked that question, you thought of judgmental, hypocritical, angry, political, self-righteous, and if one of those words came to mind for you, chances are you have a good reason for thinking that. If those words describe your experience with Christians, I'm truly sorry, because it ought not be that way. Of course, there are some positive options too. Maybe you thought of one of these, saved, adopted, forgiven, family. And all of those are good options for sure, but if we could ask the early church If we could ask the first followers of Jesus this question, I think that there's a word that would be near the top of their list that might not even be on ours, and it's this word right here, sent, sent. 
This word is so important to the early church that it's what we decided to call this sermon series in the book of Acts, sent. This is how the New Testament book of Acts begins. Jesus, risen from the dead, gathers his followers around him and he sends them out into the world to live like him, love like him, and to help others meet him. And I know it's tempting to think that our mission as Christians has somehow changed. It's, It's tempting for us to think that, oh sure, they were sent, but didn't we finish that a while ago? Didn't we cross sent off of the to-do list a while back? Or maybe you think that only certain Christians are sent. Sure, global missionaries and, yeah, maybe even pastors, but, but not me. I'm not sent. I haven't been a Christian long enough. I don't have all the answers. I'm not articulate about my faith. And besides, and, and this is the main one, besides, I haven't gone anywhere, and I'm not planning on it, So how in the world am I sent? And those are good questions, good objections to be sure. But here's the catch. You don't have to go anywhere to be sent. You don't have to go anywhere to be sent. Now, of course, some people today still go when they are sent. 100%, I believe, and Christ Community believes that we still need missionaries who answer God's call on their lives to leave and go. Some of you might remember Blinda and Jeremy Dunn. They attended the Brookside campus for a few years. They were two of my best volunteers in student ministries, two of my favorite people in the whole world. And God called them to go to Papua New Guinea. Jeremy is a small airplane mechanic. They're going to live on base where Jeremy will fix the airplanes that other missionaries will take into the brush to get the gospel message of Jesus to people who haven't heard it yet. They both went to Bible college, and Jeremy has this unique skill where he can fix small airplanes. When they started talking to me about whether or not they should go be missionaries, I was like, yeah, (laughs) you should do that, right? I mean, this God has uniquely prepared and equipped them to do that. I affirmed that for them, going is what it looked like for them to be sent. But for many of us, that won't be our story. For most of us, we'll have to figure out what it looks like for us being sent while also not going anywhere. Because listen to me, hear me, if you're a Christian this morning, you have been sent. You've been sent. Your work, your school, your home, neighborhood, friendships, hobbies, your every move, none of it is a mistake. God has put you there. You have been sent into the everyday normal of your life. So here's the question for us this morning. Where has God sent you? Where has God sent you? Turn with me, if you're not already there, to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 is a major turning point in the book of Acts in multiple ways. Acts 13 shifts from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. It shifts from ministry to the Jews to ministry to the Gentiles. And finally, Acts 13 shows us a shift from the Apostle Peter to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter was one of Jesus' 12 original disciples, and he was the major character of Acts chapters 1 through 12. He's all over those first 12 chapters. And as we've walked through those chapters, we've gotten to know Peter really well. But if you look at Acts 12.25, we see that Paul takes center stage, and that remains true for the rest of the book. And we shouldn't forget Paul's origin story either. We get a glimpse of this earlier in the book. Paul hated Christians, and in fact, he had given over his whole life to finding them, seeking them out, and trying to destroy them. 
But then when he was on one of those missions, he met the resurrected Jesus and it all flipped upside down for him. Instead of being dedicated to the mission of destroying Christians, he became dedicated to Jesus and to his mission of helping more and more meet him. And we see how this begins to take shape for Paul formally in Acts 13. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. Now, while the church in Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13 is also a little bit later on in verse 9 where we get the shift from Saul to Paul. So same guy. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, the church laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And you know, reading these verses, I couldn't help but think of our global outreach partner in Kenya, the 11th Hour Network. Some of you joined us this past Wednesday evening for an evening in Kenya. It was a presentation from the team that's pictured here, Jose, Megan, Lisa, and Bill. Bill led a, a, a partner trip back in April to Kenya to get a sense for what's currently happening with our partner there, the 11th Hour Network. And our partner does a lot of work, but at its core, the 11th Hour Network is a church planting network with an emphasis on training, equipping, and get this, with an emphasis on sending, sending pastors and evangelists to different villages in northern Kenya. And as I heard the stories on Wednesday, and as I saw the pictures that rolled in about what's happening, God's work, what he's doing overseas, one picture more than any other stuck with me. Gitachu, the leader of the 11th Hour Network, Many of you have met Getch or heard him speak and pray when he's been on his visits to Kansas City over the years. Gitachu invited these pastors and evangelists together for a training, as he often does. And at the end of the training, when they were all finished up, as they were getting ready to finish, do you know what Getch and Bill did? We've got a great picture of it right here. Isn't that incredible? Let me read for us again Acts 13.3. Then, after fasting and praying... The church laid their hands on them and sent them off. We can go back to that picture. I just want you to see that because when I saw that picture on Wednesday night, I was blown away by the continuity, by the sameness. I'm, I'm studying Acts 13, I'm preparing this sermon, and then a picture of Bill and Getch laying hands and sending off pastors. In I mean, what God has done, he is doing, church. In Kenya, 2000, I'm sorry, in, uh, in Antioch, 2,000 years ago with Paul and Barnabas. In Kenya, two months ago with Bill and Getch and with these pastors. And today, right here in Kansas City with me and with you, what God has done, he is doing. It's incredible. Equipping, training, calling, sending. And this is why we have to keep walking through Paul and Barnabas' story in Acts 13. Because in this story, we'll uncover a paradigm for us as those who are also sent. Yes, it's different. We're not going to be sent out from Antioch and Syria down to a port city where we'll sail to Cyprus. That's not our story. But just like Paul and Barnabas were sent, we are also sent. And there's a paradigm here for us in Acts 13. But Paul and Barnabas, they are sent from Antioch and Syria. They do head down to a port city and they sail for Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. Here's a map to help us understand where they were sent from. So Cyprus is right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and Barnabas was from there. We discovered that in Acts chapter four. It, it made sense as a starting place for them. So they land on Cyprus and follow along with me in verse five. When they arrived, when Paul and Barnabas arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. 
They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now that part of the verse might be a tad confusing because just a minute ago, I mentioned that Acts 13 marked a major shift in the book, including a pivot from ministry to the Jews to ministry to the Gentiles or to the non-Jews. So so what are Paul and Barnabas doing here in the Jewish synagogues? They start there. Well, what this is is it's actually a pattern that Paul establishes on his missionary journeys, and we'll see this pattern over and over again throughout the rest of the book of Acts. He goes around the known world from city to city, and he almost always begins in the synagogues with the Jews. And in the synagogues with the Jewish people, he sees marginal success, but far more often than that, he experiences incredible opposition and rejection. And the opposition and rejection that he receives from his fellow Jews causes him to turn, therefore, to the Gentiles, and they, the Gentiles, respond to the gospel in droves. This is Paul's pattern. But whether in the synagogues with the Jews or in the public square with the Gentiles, the message, what Paul proclaimed, did not change in either place. Paul consistently proclaimed the same thing, and we see what it was in Acts 13.5. Look back. Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the word of God. No matter where they were, no matter who they were with, they consistently proclaimed the word of God. Paul didn't proclaim his opinion didn't preach a new and better philosophy. He wasn't aiming to spark a political uprising. No, Paul proclaimed faithfully and consistently the word of God. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, we get a hint later on in this chapter. Most of Acts 13, if you've looked ahead, is actually a sermon of Paul's that Luke has recorded for us. And this is a hint of what Paul did when he proclaimed the word of God. And there's a lot of details in that sermon that would be worth exploring, but the bottom line takeaway that we shouldn't miss from this sermon is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Paul, as he traces the history of God interacting with his people, he, focus on the fact that, he focuses on the fact that God, over and over again, has initiated works and acts of grace. Works of grace that culminated in God sending Jesus, the God-man, the ultimate king. Jesus, who was wrongly accused and killed, but then rose again, defeating death and providing a way to enter into right relationship with God himself. So in other words, proclaiming the word of God means to tell the true story of who God is and what he has done. Proclaiming the word of God means to tell the true story of who God is and what he has done. And church, don't miss this. As ones who are also sent, this is exactly what you are called to do as well. Not preach a sermon, but proclaim truth. Proclaim truth. That's the first bit we see of our paradigm. We are sent to proclaim truth. This is the first glimpse that we see of what it means for us to also be sent. Proclaim truth. This is what Paul did over and over again in sermons to big crowds and in conversations with just one person. He faithfully and consistently proclaimed truth and is what we are called to do as well. Now, I hope that I haven't lost some of you. And I understand the difficulty of what I'm saying. I really do because there's hardly anything that's more offensive today in our culture than saying, I have the truth. Let me tell you about it. Believe me, I hear how arrogant that sounds. But friends, our truth is not a list of rules. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. Our truth is not a political agenda. 
Our truth is not an opinion about the way that life is best lived. No, the truth that we carry with us and proclaim is about what God has done in Jesus and about the new life that is possible through him. I don't believe in Jesus because I feel like it. Some days I don't. And I don't believe in Jesus because it makes all my problems go away. It absolutely doesn't. No, I believe in Jesus because I believe that Jesus' story, as unbelievable as it may sound, is true. I believe in Jesus because I believe that his story is true. And listen, when we proclaim truth, it better not be in arrogance. I mean, how could it? Baked right into our story is the fact that we broke everything and God had to send Jesus to fix it. How do we get off being prideful while that's the story that we have to tell? There is no room for arrogance, no room for pride when we proclaim this truth. There is only room for humility. There is only room to proclaim truth in love humbly. And when we do that, when we proclaim truth humbly in love, do you know what happens? People reveal how hungry they are for truth. People reveal how hungry they are for truth. We see this no matter when it happens. Look back at Acts 13. Jump to verse 42. This is right after Paul finishes preaching. It's right after he finishes proclaiming the beautiful truth of Jesus. This is what verse 42 says. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Begged. I gotta say, that's never happened to me. People have never said, Paul, please keep preaching. But that's what happens for Paul and Barnabas. These listeners, they hadn't heard truth like this. Think about it. This was the first time they'd ever heard about Jesus. And they were desperate, hungry, they, were, they needed to hear more. Please tell me more about God's grace. Please tell me more about this King Jesus. They were hungry for truth. They were desperate for truth. But it's not just first century folks who are hungry for truth, is it? It's the same in our day. I don't know about you, but so many people that I meet, everyone I meet, everyone I know is searching, grasping, reaching, questioning. What's the good life? What can I count on? What makes sense of me, of the world, of all of this? What's really true? Are you familiar with Sean Mendez? He's an on-the-rise pop star, only 19 years old. His most recent hit is a song called In My Blood. Maybe you've heard it. The music video has 115 million views. I actually, it's probably more than that. I checked two days ago. 115 million views on YouTube. Do you remember when Going Viral meant it had a million views? 115 million. Something in this song is hitting a nerve, is hitting a nerve. Let's watch a minute of this song. Someone help me. Someone help me. He's calling out for it. Help me figure this out. What is truth? What is happiness? How do I find it? Help! I've been noticing lately, maybe you have too, our culture writes great verses and terrible choruses. Great verses and terrible choruses. Verses, right, they diagnose the problem and they are on point. Verses are why this song has 115 million views because as he goes through, as he diagnoses the problem, you're like, yes, yes, 
Where is it? How do I find it? This didn't work. That didn't work. Where is it? Verses are on point in our culture, but our choruses, they fall way short. When you get to the chorus, that's the proposed solution. That's the fix to the problem that we just diagnosed, and here it is for Sean Mendez, and I, I, my heart breaks for him, with him. His chorus is this, nothing I do makes me happy, so I'm just going to keep trying because it's not in my blood to give up. And we should just stop. Again, I'm not, listen, I'm with him in this. But we should all stop and go, is that really it? Nothing I've ever tried has worked, so I'll just double down and keep trying because it's not in my blood to give up. We should all stop and go, no, there's something better. There is a truth. There is a good life. And it's not found in any of those places. It's found in surrender. It's found in love. It's found in sacrifice. It's found in taking second. It's found in Jesus. Friends, we have that truth. And not because we're better. Not because we're so smart, but because somebody was sent to us. My mom was sent to me. Who was sent to you? Who was sent to you that told you about the better way to live, that told you about the Jesus way? And who's going to be sent to Sean to let him know that it doesn't have to be that way? We have the truth. And listen, people are hungry for it. And when it's, when it's proclaimed humbly in love, do you know what happens? People are persuaded. They believe. You're sitting here right now likely... Because you believe, because someone was sent to you, explained the truths of Jesus, and you were persuaded and you believe. That is what happens. And we see this in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas, they're still on the island of Cyprus, and while they're there, they get an audience with a guy named Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul. This guy is the most important and influential person on the island. He is the top Roman official. And this guy, Sergius Paulus, he hears a bit about Jesus, just a little bit. Maybe he was searching, like Sean Mendez. Who knows? But he hears just a little bit about Jesus and he invites Paul and Barnabas in for an audience. He wants to hear more. He needs to hear more. And then Acts 13, 12, it's beautiful. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord, Paul and Barnabas proclaim the simple message of the truth of Jesus and Sergius Paulus is persuaded, convinced, he believes. He joins the Jesus way. Or how about after Paul's sermon, later in the chapter, we already saw in verse 30, 42 that the people begged Paul and Barnabas to come back the following week. Well, look at verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Truth is proclaimed. People are persuaded. They believe. It happened then, and it's happening now. Do you know why? In record numbers today, people all over the world are coming to Jesus. In China, in the Middle East, in Kenya, under the work of our wonderful partner, the 11th Hour Network. It's not because it's fun. It's terrible there if you're a Christian. It's not because it's convenient. You could lose everything. If you were with us on Wednesday, you heard stories. These pastors and evangelists, the pictures that you just saw, many of them lost their families when they dedicated their lives to Jesus. Why? Why is the message of Jesus breaking down barriers and growing at an unprecedented rate? It's because it's true. 
It's because it's true. Everyone everywhere longs for truth, is desperate for it. And the truth contained in the word of God, it makes sense of things, doesn't it? I mean, this is our story. I think it makes sense of any, it doesn't, there's questions, but this is our story and I think it makes sense. First, there is a God. The creator of everyone, everyone and everything. The first mover. There has to be a first mover. No matter what your worldview is, no matter how you think everything got here, there has to be something that was here before everything else. There has to be a first mover. For us, that is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And he's a good and great and powerful creator. And instantly, if this is true, and I know that's a big if, but if it's true, you have purpose, I have purpose. None of this was an accident. But then we rebelled, we rejected our creator. And that makes sense of things too, doesn't it? Because I'm sure you've noticed with me, in everything there is beauty. There's beauty in everything. And there's also a lot of brokenness too. There's beauty, that's from God, our good and perfect creator, but there's also brokenness, hardship, suffering, difficulty. That's because of our rebellion and sin. But then God came. For before God sent us, his followers, he first sent his son, Jesus, who dies in our place but didn't stay dead. And this Jesus, he offers us all forgiveness, love, an invitation to a new family. Listen, I, I realize that there are many legitimate and difficult hurdles to belief. I'm not minimizing those at all. But doesn't at some level, doesn't that story speak to your deepest longings? in your heart? Doesn't it even just begin to piece together or begin at some level to make sense of what you experience and see around you? Friends, those of us that follow Jesus are sent, every single one of us, to proclaim the truth of Jesus to a world that is desperate for it. So where has God sent you? Now, there's another side to this. Yes, people are hungry for truth, and yes, when truth is proclaimed, often... People are persuaded and they believe, but not everyone. And we know that, right? Our experience bears that out, and we see this in Paul and Barnabas' story too. We're sent to proclaim truth, yes, but we are also sent to opposition. We are also sent to opposition. We can trace this back through Paul and Barnabas' story. When they're on Cyprus, Cyprus is a difficult place. It was tough, spiritually dark and oppressive, and yes, we've already seen how the Roman proconsul believed, how he was persuaded to believe in Jesus, but that didn't happen without some opposition first. Verse 6, when Paul and Barnabas had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, that means son of Jesus. Jesus was a common name in those days. This guy wasn't related to our Jesus, but Luke wants us to feel the irony and the discomfort of the fact that this guy is named Son of Jesus. In fact, it's so hard for Luke to call him that that he can only bring himself to do it once. He switches to his other name in verse 8, Elimas. But Elimas, the magician, opposed them, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And it's actually fascinating because Sergius Paulus is a really important convert. He is the first truly Gentile convert that didn't have any background in Judaism at all. So he's a big deal, and he's influential on the island. But if you read the first 12 verses of Acts 13, the, actually the focus is all on the opposition. The focus is actually all on Elimas. Sergius Paulus gets mentioned once, maybe twice. But if you read through, you're like, man, Luke really wants you to get the fact that Paul and Barnabas were opposed by this magician. 
I mean, this magician knew he had a cush job. He was reading the tea leaves. He was with Sergius Paulus. He could advise him on, quote, the future. And so if the proconsul becomes a Christian, the Elimas, he knows he's out of a job. And so he assumes a posture of opposition against Jesus and his followers. And he stands in a long line of people who have adopted that same posture. We see it here in Acts 13 from Elimas. We see it as well at the end of our chapter. We've already covered the positive response to Paul's sermon. People begged them to return and teach them again, but what happened when they actually showed up to do that? Verses 44 and 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Opposition. Opposition that eventually results in Paul and Barnabas being run out of Antioch, likely after receiving a physical beating, the first of many that they would receive. And you know, opposition has been part of our story from the very beginning. Because after all, wasn't Jesus opposed to the point of death? Why then do we get so surprised when we experience the slightest rejection, opposition? Why does this catch us off guard? And here's the other part of this. Who can blame the world for opposing Jesus? Jesus challenges the status quo at every turn. He challenged the status quo of the magician. He challenged the status quo of the Jewish leaders who stood to lose everything if the Jesus way gained steam. And it's no different for us. The Jesus way challenges the status quo. The gospel both affirms and denies things in every culture. Listen, because of Jesus, we believe in justice, morality, human dignity. We believe in unborn babies' right to live. We proclaim an incredibly unpopular sexual ethic. We argue that life isn't ultimately about happiness, doing whatever makes us feel good, but about holiness, about becoming the people that we were created to be. And we believe that salvation comes through one man only. A man who, by the way, we believe was previously dead but lives again. A man who, by the way, not, didn't just defeat death and is now living again, but actually is the king of everything. He reigns over the entire universe. A man who, by the way, wasn't just dead and then now lives. He's not just king. We actually believe that this guy is going to come back again riding on a horse to judge all evil and brokenness and corruption. That's our story. That's what we believe. And, and we're surprised when people scoff at that. We're surprised when there's opposition, when there's rejection. That's our story, and we didn't expect to be just a little bit unpopular. Don't be surprised by opposition. But don't make it worse either. And we can do that, can't we? Christians, man, some of them can just be, and I've, I've been here myself, I'm sure, mean, arrogant, judgy. We shouldn't bring it on ourselves. That's not the paradigm. We're sent to opposition, sure, but we're not sent to stir up the opposition. And some of you, I know, you feel opposition every day. You feel it at home. You feel it in the comments that are made at work. Students that are here today, thank you for being here with us. I cannot imagine how difficult it is for you to be Christians in this climate, in this day and age. But in the face of opposition, all of us should take hope because it's not an accident. You weren't sent there by mistake. 
Jesus had a point. He had a purpose. He sent you there. And what's more, take hope, not just because it's not an accident, but take hope because even in spite of the opposition, there is joy. Joy is possible. We're sent to proclaim truth, and yes, we're sent to opposition, but we're also sent with joy. We're sent with joy. You and I, when I think about sharing my faith, when I think about being sent, I, I don't typically think about joy. Do you? I feel guilty that I don't share more often. I feel overwhelmed. You know, up here on this platform, I can talk about Jesus all day long. But with my neighbors, with my non-Christian family members, I'm just like all the rest of you, incredibly afraid and a little bit awkward. <laughs> Scared that my proclamation of the truth will be seen as arrogant. Scared of the opposition that I know will come. And this is the last part. I'm scared, but I'm also forgetful of the joy that is promised. Because after everything in Acts 13, do you know how the chapter ends? They're opposed, they're ridiculed, they're kicked out. And they're leaving town. And Acts 13.52 reads this way. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that just knock you off of your seat? In spite of everything, in spite of the opposition, joy is possible. Because here's the thing. Some people did believe, didn't they? Sergius Paulus, verse 43, however many that was that, that came to Jesus, that surrendered their lives to Jesus. If you've ever had a front row seat to somebody surrendering their life to Jesus, you know that there is no better word to describe it than joy. When you get first-person viewing to somebody giving their life over to Jesus, crossing from death to life, you know that joy is the, no matter what else is going on, you're gonna say, you know what? I am joyful. I am joyful when I get to witness somebody understand that the Jesus way is the better way. That's joy. Happiness ebbs and flows, comes and goes, but joy, joy because of what the Lord is doing in saving people through Jesus, that lasts, that sticks, that perseveres. I was privileged to have that experience recently. Let me tell you about Carter. Carter started attending the Brookside campus last year. He wasn't a Christian when he started coming. He came with his fiance. And then shortly after starting to attend, Carter hit rock bottom. He finally admitted that he had a serious drug and alcohol addiction. And there was a lot of struggle in that moment, in that time. It was a challenging season for him, his fiance, his family. He had to have a month of inpatient rehab to get sober. And then he had to figure out what the new normal would be. Outpatient rehab, regular AA meetings. And during the initial part of this long road to recovery, he also reached out to me. We grabbed breakfast just up the road to the Classic Cookie. Faith is a part of this now for me, he said. Jesus is my higher power, but I don't know what I don't know. I didn't grow up in church. All of this is brand new to me, and to be honest, I've got a ton of baggage. Can you help me? It's the easiest and quickest yes I've ever given. I recommended the message paraphrase of the Bible. Carter left that breakfast, drove to a bookstore, and bought one right away. I had him start with the Gospel of Mark, the simple, true message of Jesus. This is what he texted me two days later. So I read all of Mark. <laughs> I'm hooked now. What can I read next? We sat down again, and do you know the first question he asked me? And we, the very first question he asked me, 
Why wouldn't anyone want this to be true? Why wouldn't anyone want this to be true? Listen, he was not minimizing the hurdles to belief. A lot of the questions that came after for Carter were really difficult questions, and we had great conversation engaging that. He wasn't minimizing the hurdles to belief, but why wouldn't anyone want this to be true? In spite of those questions, and I have some of them too, Carter gave his life to Jesus. Joy. Joy. I'm so glad that where God sent me put me in the way of Carter. His story is one of my deepest joys. And don't forget, you have been sent to who might God put in your way. The only question is where you've been sent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that what you have done, you continue to do. Through Paul and Barnabas, the proclaiming the truth of Jesus, Lord, through us here in Kansas City as we are sent, thank you for stories like Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. Thank you for stories like Carter's here in Kansas City. I'm so grateful for what you continue to do through your church, Lord, what we get to be a part of. It is a deep honor and joy. May we go from this place with joy and the Holy Spirit, even though there will be opposition, to faithfully proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.